Well, it's great to see you today. Thank you for joining us here in-house and online. Today's subject is going to be preparing for a storm. To do that, we're going to look at the penultimate chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. It seems almost incredible that we've been, I think, more than two years in Luke and Acts. And as we've gone on that journey, we've seen many ways in which God comes into the lives of different people and how people have encountered him. In this particular story that we'll look at today, we're going to see how it is that God stepped into a situation that was perilous and seemed hopeless. And um, it may be that you're not particularly feeling hopeless. It may be that you're feeling the prospect of a perilous future, maybe perilous events, difficulties on the horizon. It may be that you're unaware of something that's coming around the corner. But what we can be sure of is none of us are going to be experiencing tomorrow in precisely the way that we experienced today, today. Tomorrow is going to be a different day. And one of the things that we have to be aware of as we look towards the future is that God wants to prepare us to meet him in the future. And so today we're going to look at that. Acts 27 is a great starting point for us. And I'm going to read portions of uh, the passage that we have today because we have 26 verses and it would take almost the whole time uh, of the sermon if we read all of it. But I'm going to begin with verse 1 and then I'll tell you where I'm editing as I go along and hopefully give you some commentary as we continue. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. So this guy knew what it was to make the journey to Rome because, of course, in Rome was his home. He was part of the Imperial Regiment. They set out and off they go with various different members of Paul's team and a whole bunch of people on the ship, more than 200. Verse 5 says this, When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Myra occurs only once in the Bible, but uh, interestingly, it's where Santa Claus was born. St. Nicholas of Myra is the saint upon which all of the legends um, of St. Nicholas are based. And uh, the story goes that Paul, whilst he was in Myra, led several people to the Lord, and in successive generations, they led St. Nicholas to the Lord also. Verse 8, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, which is just around the corner, if you don't know where that is, <laughs> near the town of Lassia. Verse 10, men, says Paul, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. You see, what was happening 
was that the weather had changed. They'd taken the journey late in the year, and because it was late in the year, the weather was beginning to turn for the worst. Winter weather was beginning to press in. Maybe you've never been to the Mediterranean in the winter. I have. And it's pretty much like any other coastal location in the winter. It's horrible. Cold and rain, that's not the kind of attractive environment that you want to be in. And even though you're sailing through the Greek islands and perhaps are in this kind of romantic environment, I can assure you it doesn't look like that. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. You see, they had kind of paused for a moment, prevaricating, wondering whether they should go on or wait in this rather inhospitable location. But when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought, great, let's get on with it. But of course, before long, a hurricane swept down from the northeast and took the ship out into the open ocean. Verse 17, when the man had hoisted the lifeboat aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. All kinds of nautical things are occurring there, bringing the lifeboat on board because it's normally towed behind the boat, but of course, in the troubled seas that they're in, it's likely that they're going to lose that boat, so they bring it in. They pass ropes underneath the ship. The ship clearly is a ship of some substance, but in a storm, the engineering in those days was not what it is today, clearly, and obviously the boat would begin to suffer. Passing ropes underneath the boat would be a way of holding the hull together. Now, here's the thing. What they don't mention is this. If they can't get the ropes to go under by passing them by hand across the prow of the boat, then some poor soul has to jump into the stormy water with the rope tied around their waist, swim under the boat, and then come up the other side. And they probably have to do that at least twice. So I'm assuming that there was one of those shortest straw competitions at that moment. Verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. He goes on to say in verse 23, Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And as we'll discover next week, that some island is the island of Malta. So, here is Paul. He's in the midst of a terrible hurricane. It's been 
a world without sun or stars for two weeks. No one has eaten. Everyone has been desperately sick. Very few people are able to stand. Most people are so overwhelmed with sickness that they're just waiting to die. And in the midst of that situation, Paul has a visitation from heaven, an angel, who tells him to keep courage. Now, even before the angel came, Paul seemed to have a different disposition towards this storm than the other people on the boat. And what I want to do today is I want to examine what it is that was going on in the inner life of Paul that prepared him for the storm that was coming. Anybody interested in the weather around here? Anybody got a phone with them? Anybody on their phone got a weather app? I have the Weather Channel app, um, which apparently is run by IBM, and they're always trying to get me to go premium. I can't imagine what premium would offer me because there's way more on this than anybody could possibly ever want. Um, but one of the things that I love about my weather app, and you can't see it from there, but you can on yours, is that I get a map. And it has the radar, and it has the rainfall, and it... Have you got one of those? And it kind of predicts where things are going to go next. Now, what I've discovered about American weather is this. There is no forecasting. <laughs> has anybody noticed that? And the main reason for that is that we live in the Midwest. Now, forecasting in the southeast, where we used to live, in South Carolina, was much easier. And the reason for that is that there are mountains that run the entire length of the southeast corner of the country, called the Appalachians or the Blue Ridge, whatever you want to call them. But they're basically, the geological formation is the Appalachian Mountains. And it means that all of the coastal weather gets funneled into a particular direction and you can tell what's going to happen tomorrow because what's going to happen tomorrow is what happened yesterday a few miles down the road. Now, we, however, are in the Midwest. And the Midwest is like living on a tabletop. And when you pour water onto a tabletop, there is not a person who is able to predict where the water will flow. True? So you pour the water on the tabletop and you go, hmm, it's doing a completely different thing to the last time it did that. That's why we can't work out what's going on. Because it's moving around in every direction that it wants to. There are so many factors that are built into the weather that we have here. But this is something for certain. And you can write this down and you can say to your neighbors that you got this from church. A storm is certainly coming. Say to your neighbor, a storm is certainly coming. Just say it to your neighbor, go ahead. So, if a storm is certainly coming, what are we supposed to do about it? If it's absolutely certain, it doesn't matter where you are, I've lived in the desert, 
I've lived on the coastland. I've lived in the maritime climate of England. I've lived in lots of different places, and I've visited most places in the world. One thing you can be certain, wherever you are, a storm is coming. And that means that it's somewhat beholden upon us, especially if we're responsible for people and property, that we take the necessary precautions. When we lived in Pawleys Island, which is right on the coast down there in the southeast corner of the country, we, like pretty much every household I knew, had a hurricane box. Because you could guarantee that at some point in your lifetime, you're going to get one. And so you have the preparations necessary for the certainty that is coming. So you and I are absolutely certain that a storm is coming to our life. And of course, the storm is a metaphor of sudden, shocking, transformative events that unsettle, that disrupt, that throw us off our balance, that put us off our kilter. We can be certain that something of that order is coming our way. And if that's the case, it would be good to have the necessary preparations in place. Maybe not a hurricane box, but something of a similar usefulness in relation to our life in general. So let's just think about this. <clears throat> We've done this before, and it's, a, it's an important way of studying the Bible. We're looking at a particular narrative with particular characters. The characters that are most certainly there that we know about, apart from Aristarchus, who's mentioned in the text, if you read it carefully, who's from Macedonia, we know that Paul, Julius, and Luke are present. Julius is the named centurion. Paul is the main character of the story. And Luke is the narrator because this is one of the places in the Acts of the Apostles called the Weverses. Not just by the Scots, but by anyone who understands the difference between a narrator speaking of something that happened to other people and a narrator who's speaking about something that happens to him. First person plural, we set out. Luke is present. So the two characters that we probably know the most about are Paul and Luke. Now, one of the things we're fairly certain of is that during this episode in Paul's life, a certain number of the New Testament letters were written. They're called the prison epistles. One of them is Ephesians, another is Colossians. One is a private note to a person called Philemon. And also during this time, the letter to the Philippians is written. Now, Paul had left Luke in Philippi after he planted that church. And we've heard mention of it with Karen and Jason this morning as they referenced what it was that God had spoken to women seeking excellence from the scriptures. And it was from the book of Philippians. And here in this 
early church, the first church in Europe planted by Paul, a group of women began to form the first congregation. We know that added to that first congregation was another congregation from another household of the Philippian jailer who came to Christ after the earthquake struck him and struck the prison that he was overseeing. Paul leaves Philippi with Silas with some pomp and honor. And the reason for that is that Paul mentions to the Philippian jailer that he's a Roman citizen and that they've been treated poorly by the magistrates in Philippi and they've been beaten in a way that is not commensurate with his status as a Roman citizen. And so the magistrates are all panicking now. They come and they want to release Paul and Silas and Paul says, not on your nelly. That's an English expression meaning I'm not going to do that. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You've dishonored me and magistrates of Rome. You've dishonored Rome. So I would like you to come here and escort me out of the city. He was a handful, wasn't he, Paul? So Paul and Silas are escorted with some degree of honor out of the city of Philippi because he's a Roman citizen. Now, everywhere, being a Roman citizen is very important, but in a place that had the nickname Little Rome, it was even more important because Philippi was one of the few cities in the world where outside of Italy, people only spoke Latin. And the reason they only spoke Latin was it was mainly populated by people who had been in the Roman army and had retired and had found some land in this area that was well known for its martial history. It was where Brutus had been defeated by Octavius and this was the place where Rome had been formed in the crucible of battle. And so many Roman soldiers wanted to be there because it kind of reminded them of all of the things that they'd given them given themselves to and given their lives to. And so there in Rome, there in Philippi, they called the place Little Rome. So citizenship of Rome was hugely important in Philippi. Well, I wonder, as they were just sitting there on their Mediterranean cruise before the storm came, whether Luke and Paul were just kind of shooting the breeze. How's Lydia doing, Luke? Well, you know, not too bad. How's the relationship between you and Lydia? I didn't know you knew about that, Paul. Yeah, I have my spies. Some commentators actually speculate that the reason that Luke stayed behind in Philippi was that he fell in love with Lydia and married her. But that's the soap opera version of the Bible. I have no idea whether that's true. <laughs> but Luke, we know, stayed on and was picked up by Paul again at the back end of his third missionary journey right there in Philippi. So Luke has kind of got lots of details and lots of stories and Lots of stuff. And of course, Paul is going to Rome because he doesn't want to be tried in Jerusalem by the Jewish 
officials and under Jewish law because he knows he'll be in trouble if he does that. And so he's claimed, again, his Roman citizenship. Now, the letter to the, Philipp- to the Philippians is going to be written during this time. And my guess is, because Paul's like anybody else, he's thinking about what it is that he needs to talk about. What does he need to talk to the Philippian Christians about? The place where he claimed his Roman citizenship and the tables were turned on those rather wicked magistrates who listened to the slave owners. What is he going to say? What's the the central point of his message to them? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, And verse 20, you find certainly one of the central verses of what it is that Paul wants to say to the Philippians. And look what he says. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul says, there is a citizenship that is greater than Greek citizenship. There's a citizenship that's greater than Jewish citizenship. And everybody's going, that's right, Roman citizenship. Paul says, there's a citizenship that's greater than Roman citizenship. The citizenship of heaven. And if you'll read carefully what he says here and in other places, of course, the citizenship is applied to those who are part of heaven's populace but particularly to Christians because they're part of the royal family of heaven and so obviously they're citizens of heaven. So here's Paul wanting to speak to the people of Philippi. He's thinking about these things. These are his internal ratiocinations, his internal reflections, his thoughts as he's preparing to write the letter that will one day be enshrined in Holy Scripture. And as he thinks about it, the central point of the message is that the Philippians don't have to worry whether they're citizens of Rome. They don't have to worry whether they're citizens of some small nation because they're citizens of heaven. And that changes everything. So let's think about this for a moment. If this is what Paul is thinking, and there's no reason to assume that he's not, because this letter is coming out of this time, this journey, this period in his life, and so surely these are the things that he's reflecting on. If Paul is thinking about these things in the midst of a storm that is brewing in the Mediterranean, ready to take him pell-mell across the troubled waters of that particular sea. How would such a thought settle his inner framework of security? 
Because the thing about Paul in the midst of this storm is that he's reacting differently to everyone else. So let's think about it together. If he is a citizen of heaven, he has his destination secured. His destination is not some island that he sees in a vision. His destination is not Rome and Caesar's court. His destination is not any return journey to Jerusalem. His destination, he knows for sure, because he's certain of his citizenship, is heaven itself. And so he knows that there is a home, that there is a welcome, that there is a harbor that is going to embrace him and bring him into a place of security and blessing. His destination is heaven. And the way he puts it is this. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain because I will gain my destination. My destination is secure. My destination is certain. And that certainty and that security of my destination gives me certainty and security in the midst of the changing waters of life. How do you prepare for the next storm? Remember that the storm is never going to be your destination. And the other side of the storm is not going to be your destination. Heaven is your destination. The security of that changes the way that you approach the present. So your destination is secure if heaven is your home. And because heaven is your home, and because you know that there is a welcome there, and that the citizenship is based upon the kindness and grace of God, you can be sure of his goodness. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his what purpose? Good purpose. God has a purpose for your life. God has a, a, a destiny for your life. God has a way of drawing you through this life to the destination that he's prepared for you. And the thing that he has for you in the journey along the way are good things. Isn't that great? A good God can always be relied upon for good things in the midst of bad things. In the midst of difficulty. In the midst of the storm, we can look for the good thing. The good thing is not inverting the bad thing and trying to make it good. Of course not. The good thing is the good thing that God's doing in the midst of the bad thing. 
And you know that God is good, and you know that the destination is certain, and you know your citizenship is secure, and you, you know that the one who's given you that citizenship never changes, and so there will be good in the midst of the bad. So, being a citizen of heaven means we have a certainty of destination. We have a security that goodness is in the midst of the difficulty. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we can be unafraid. Look what it says in chapter 1 of, of Philippians, verse 28. It says this, Without being frightened. Don't you love the way the Bible talks to us? I love that. Without being frightened in any way, by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Surely, as the Philippians hear this, they can remember Paul walking with some nobility out of the city of Philippi, knowing that God had intervened with an earthquake to open the doors of the jail, to convert the heart of the jailer and transform the circumstance of Paul and Silas, surely they remembered that. And surely, when they saw their own circumstances being challenged by difficulty, being challenged by the, by the overshadowing presence of evil, they were able to be unafraid. Fear is a normal human response. And of course, being afraid is a good thing if you're afraid of walking across the 75, teaching children not to go near the fire. Of course, fear is a good thing. But being afraid of what it is that's going to happen next, God wants us to be unafraid. Unafraid. Because his presence is a good presence. And his good presence reminds us that his love is right here. And perfect love does what? Perfect love does what? Casts out fear. So we can be unafraid even in the midst and the prospect. And often this is the truth, isn't it? It's the prospect of the storm, not the presence of the storm that causes us to be most afraid. The prospect of the storm, we don't have to be afraid. Because in the midst of the storm, we're going to find God. In the midst of the storm, He's going to find us. In the midst of the storm, His goodness is going to be continuous. In the midst of the storm, His character doesn't change. In the midst of the storm, we do not need to be afraid. Because we're citizens of heaven, we have a certain destination. We have the goodness of God to rely upon. We don't have to be afraid at all. And because all of these things are true, we have the energy within us, both spiritual and, listen to me, emotional. We have the spiritual and emotional energy. Because the thing that debilitates your emotional energy more than anything is fear. And if you're unafraid, 
If you find that God meets you in the midst of the last set of circumstances that were overwhelming, He will certainly do it again. And because you know that, it reinforces your emotional energy to be able to do something that Paul speaks about and that people often refer to when they look at Philippians. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Not that I have already obtained the destination of the journey or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In the midst of the storm, we press on. It was an interesting thing for me. Um, you know, we've all been through the COVID thing, and it was pretty grim, wasn't it? It was horrible. But it's interesting to me how many pastors contacted me and said, thanks for doing those daily devotions. Because during COVID, as you might remember, I did a kind of morning and evening thing. And a number of pastors and leaders contacted me. And one of the things that they said to me was, that they were so overwhelmed by the shocking circumstances, they weren't quite sure what they were to do next. I think the only reason that we can ever be prepared for the next storm is we learn the lessons of unpreparedness in the current storm. And so they would say to me, how come you just have a different disposition to this? And I said, because I've made so many catastrophic mistakes in the past storms of my life. And I've been swept away so often. And I didn't want to do that again. And they said, oh, well, that's a relief. We thought it was some kind of you know, English thing. <laughs> We'll fight them on the beaches. <laughs> we'll meet them in the cities. We'll never surrender. I did mention that a couple of times, but they didn't think that that was significant. So, so in the midst of the storm that you're in right now, and you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I didn't do any of this. This is the opportunity right now. Here's the preparation right now. In the midst of feeling overwhelmed right now, let's learn what it is that's going to help us for the next time. Amen, anybody? Amen. Amen. We're unafraid. We press on. We're nearly there. What else? Well, in the midst of the storm, it's really interesting. You listen to what Paul says. Later on, as we look at it, he gives them all kinds of really helpful advice, like you need to eat something. Um, you know, kind of, you wouldn't think that that's a really necessary advice, but for people who've been vomiting for 14 days, then yeah, it is a really useful thing. 
because you've got to be able to swim to the shore. And as we'll discover, that advice really helps them. What it is that Paul is able to do in the midst of the storm is to serve other people. He puts it like this in words that were so compelling that they've become a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Philippians 2.5. In the midst of the storm, if the preparations have been learned or the lack of preparations have been learned from the last storm, we can be not simply survivors, but we can be servants in the midst of the storm. If you were overwhelmed by the last storm and you've survived, then ask God to make you a servant in the next storm. We're citizens of heaven after all. And if you're a citizen of heaven and you know that your future is to rule and to reign with Christ, surely with the knowledge of that, we can step down into the lives of others and find ways to serve. Because we're citizens of heaven, we're not going to lose anything by serving. We're not going to lose anything by offering our lives to others because we have a life that God has promised us that will last forever in glorious eternity. In the midst of the storm, we can find something for which we are grateful. The thing that's most interesting about this letter, like all of the letters of Paul, is that it begins and ends with thanksgiving. The very first thing that he says to them in verse 3 of chapter 1 is, every time I think of you, I thank God. Every time I think of you, I thank God. Not because everything they did was worthy of thanksgiving, of course not. Think about your kids for a moment. Think about your parents for a moment. Think about your friends for a moment. Not everything they do, you're thinking, oh, I'm just so overwhelmed with thanksgiving. <laughs> of course not. But here's the thing. Paul looks at the person and he sees something that God did for him through them. It changes his disposition. It changes the way that he interacts with the storm. It changes the way that other people receive from him in the midst of the storm. Finally, because we're citizens of heaven in the midst of a life that will no doubt be punctuated by the storms that all of us will experience. Paul says this, in chapter 4. And these are amazing, amazing verses. He says, if, if you're in the midst of the storm, if you're in the midst of the journey waiting for your destination, then look for something that heaven 
has touched. And think on those things. You see, this world is not entirely dark. This world is not entirely broken. This world, in the midst of its brokenness, still reflects the Creator. And there are some things about our world that cause the angels to sigh. They look at our world and they go, that's a touch of heaven. And what would those things be? Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, Karen, or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's often hard to find those things on social media. But you can. It's hard to find those things in everyday life, but you can. It's hard to find them in the streaming services that, that pour out stuff every day, but you can. Look for the things that have been touched by heaven. Where is their beauty? Where is their goodness? Where is there something that causes the angels to sigh? Because they see heaven writ large in that act of kindness, in that word of truth, in that gift of beauty. Think about those things, says Paul. And finally, if you are a citizen of heaven, be sure to learn from those who know Jesus because knowing Jesus now prepares you to meet him when you get to your destination. It's so good to know Jesus, isn't it? Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. And the God of peace in the midst of the storm, we'll be with you. It's practical stuff this week, isn't it? Just everyday practical Christianity. But here's the thing. So often we miss the simple practice of the faith. Now, here's what it is that I think God would want us to respond to today. There are some of us who most certainly are afraid of the future. Some of us have looked at the spiritual weather app and can see the hurricane coming. And maybe your anxieties have been prompted by others who are equally anxious. And you find yourself overwhelmed even before the storm has arrived. Maybe you find yourself anxious about tomorrow, concerned about what will happen to your spouse, your children, your friends, your workplace, your church. Such things will populate our hearts and minds. And God, this moment, 
wants you to take those captive. Take those thoughts captive and bring them to him. And as you bring those things captive to him, you will find that the space in your heart and mind has opened up for the gifts that he's ready to pour out to be made manifest. So my dear friends, as you prepare for the storm, as you're in the midst of the storm, Jesus today wants to give you a gift. A precious and permanent gift. A gift that can only be brought by the manifestation of his presence. He's always with you. But the manifestation of his presence is what he wants to give you today. And it may be that on previous occasions you've come or on previous occasions you haven't come. And for all kinds of reasons. But embarrassment would be a foolish reason not to receive a gift of heaven. And so if embarrassment prevents you from using your body as an instrument of worship and prayer as you come forward and say, Lord, these are the things that are in my head and in my heart and I visualize them in my hands and I'm giving them to you. If you can do that today, I really would advise you to do it. The worship team are going to come. The song that they're going to play for us has a kind of way of building up to a crescendo. So it may be that the prayer team find it difficult to pray with you at some points in this song. But they'll be there, and others will be there also to stand with you. So why don't you start moving now as the worship team come? If you're in that place of knowing that you need to give thoughts to God that are populating your heart because you want the gift of heaven made manifest now. Come on now. You, you start moving now. This is what I hear from him. He's saying, I don't want my people to be robbed of the gifts of peace, gifts of my presence. Don't be robbed today. Receive today. You come. If you have to come from the balcony, you come on. Lord, hear the prayer of our hearts. And I pray even now, Lord, for those who need to draw near to you and to take captive thoughts that have populated their hearts and minds. I pray now, Lord, for each person that we, Lord, would be able to give you those thoughts knowing that you can replace them with good things. 
that you can guard our hearts and minds by peace and love and joy. In Jesus' name. All God's people say, Amen.